when we do less, we lose our moral standing to insist that other countries keep doing more when they're already doing far more in many cases than we are as a country with all the resources that we have. Welcome to Beyond Soundbites, Episode 9. I'm Jacob Mao. This episode is part of a sequence beginning in Episode 7 that seeks to go beyond the soundbites of the hour by looking back at what's transpired since President Trump issued an executive order known as the travel ban in January 2017. We started with a story from Insaf Safu about how the Lord moved in the midst of her family's difficult displacement journey. Last episode, we got snapshots of displaced people whose present time of waiting has not yet ended, and we heard an on-the-ground perspective of how a globally reduced refugee resettlement program fits into other systems and policies affecting displaced people in Turkey. Now we switch from sending countries and countries of asylum to what has traditionally been the largest receiving country for resettled refugees, the United States. The travel ban marked the beginning of a new era for those of us involved in service and ministry to displaced people in the U.S. and Canada. Our lives and futures do not hang in the balance when refugee and asylum policies take a bad turn, but we feel the reverberations in our ministries, our jobs, and our relationships with the people we serve. 200 of us from across the U.S. and Canada came together in October 2018 for the 10th annual Refugee Highway Partnership North America Roundtable in Chicago. We grieved recent policy changes that have hurt the people we serve and care about. Sometimes it feels like we are in a country that is longing to find a loophole out of loving our brothers and sisters. We gained perspective on our own ministry context by hearing global stories of God at work in the midst of displacement. You look from the back of the room and you'll see just row and row of women in a hijab just waiting, lifting their hands, singing worship songs to a God that they are just getting to know for the first time. We heard stirring and rich testimonies from former refugees. We were seeking political asylum, but instead we discovered God's eternal purpose. We learned from each other. Basically just go around the room, kind of introduce yourself. Worshipped and prayed. One presenter who joined the gathering was Matthew Sorens, World Relief's Director of Church Mobilization. I caught up with him again in January to ask some policy questions related to the travel ban and what has transpired since here in the U.S. The travel ban executive order itself, which was issued one week into the president's term in January 2017, um, in some sense, it's it's no longer in effect, or at least most elements of it. I mean, it was a total shutdown of the refugee resettlement program for a set period of time, and that time passed, and there were some lawsuits, so things reopened, and then they were shut down again after appeals decisions and, shut, and reopened. But eventually, that time frame ended. The original executive order included seven countries, Iran, Iraq, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, Syria, and Yemen. The version eventually upheld by the Supreme Court dropped Iraq and Sudan, this left only two countries from which the U.S. has resettled substantial numbers of refugees in recent years, Somalia and Syria. So most elements of that executive order are not actually affecting the refugee resettlement program today, but on maybe a symbolic level, the effects are longstanding, and the situation has only gotten more and more difficult in terms of refugee resettlement to the United States over the past two years. So the numbers have continued to drop. Um, you know, they were... Uh, in real terms, in 2016, the calendar year, there was 96,000 refugees who came to the United States. That's 
a little bit higher than most recent years, although not historically high. Because if you go back to like the 19, uh, late 70s, early 80s, it was above 200,000 sometimes. But 2016, 96,000 refugees came in, and that was down in 2017. And then to 2018, you know, we finished the year and it was, or, you know, between 22 and 23,000. So a really dramatic decline in the total number of refugees who've been able to come to the United States. Many of us may already be familiar with the general shape of these numbers. What's important to remember is that it's a major historical shift. Countries next to conflict areas like Turkey, Jordan, Lebanon, Kenya, or Uganda have long taken in the largest numbers of displaced people by far. But in terms of proactively taking people who have been designated as refugees and saying, we'll invite them to start a new life here, the U.S. has led the way on that, at least in terms of total numbers, um, for many, many years. Um, they have That's not been true in terms of per capita, because we're a much larger company by, country by population than, say, Sweden or, or even Canada. Migration scholars call this burden-sharing, the basic idea that countries across the globe work together in accordance with the resources they have to support and care for displaced people. While the international community has called for new, innovative forms of burden-sharing in recent years, the U.S. is sending a clear message of its own, at least in terms of resettlement. I think it's actually really sad for the United States to be stepping down from that role of leadership. And the effect is we lose the, the credibility in terms of diplomacy to tell other countries to keep doing more. You know, in a country like Kenya, where they've taken just an incredible number of Somali refugees, South Sudanese refugees... Ethiopians, I mean, any number of countries, or Uganda, um, similar with South Sudan, you know, it's not necessarily popular in terms of domestic politics to keep taking refugees. But our government has historically urged those countries to do so, in some cases respecting treaties that they're part of, but um, in other cases, like Jordan, they're not part of the UN's um, Convention on Refugees. They're not legally obligated to take people. But because we know that if they are, if people get to the border and are not able to come in and they're turned back, they could be killed in some cases. We've really encouraged other countries to keep admitting people seeking asylum. When we do less, we lose our moral standing to insist that other countries keep doing more, when they're already doing far more in many cases than we are as a country with all the resources that we have. While the Trump administration secures a trend of doing less in terms of refugee resettlement, the number of people reaching the U.S. to claim asylum has grown steadily since 2014. In 2017, that number hit 330,000. 140,000 of those applicants were from countries such as El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, and Venezuela. In recent months, and especially recent weeks, all eyes have been on the U.S.-Mexico border. I think one thing that's really important to understand for the U.S. context is that uh, with what's happening at the U.S.-Mexico border, there's a whole bunch of people showing up there. They don't all have the same story, but many of them are expressing a fear of harm being done to them in their country of origin um, in a way that would qualify them as a refugee by a legal definition. That is to say they're seeking asylum under the terms of U.S. law. It's explicitly clear that if you have a credible fear of persecution, you can request asylum, and it's then the U.S. government's job to verify that, you, that your fear is indeed credible and that it's based on one of the reasons outlined under U.S. law. And what we've been doing as a country for the last couple of years now, and increasingly in the last few months, is telling people, no, go wait your turn in Mexico, um, even intentional policies to make people wait the whole process in Mexico, which um, is 
particularly problematic because it's very hard to find a U.S. attorney when you're in Mexico. Um, it's not necessarily safe in Mexico either, especially for certain categories of people who are uniquely vulnerable. Um, so it, it's, you know, it has been a really troubling situation. And I'm not in any way saying all those people are going to qualify uh, for refugee status or for asylum. But some of them certainly will. And they have the right to request it. And I think we should treat people humanely, even if our government's policies require them to eventually be deported. But um, it's really important that we respect that law as well. In Soren's view, the way the U.S. deals with people seeking asylum at its land borders, like the way it participates in the refugee resettlement program, also sends a message to the world. You know, our asylum laws, in one way or another, go back to the reality that the United States sent Jewish refugees fleeing the Nazi regime back to Europe when they came on a boat um, in the days before World War II. And we, as a country, along with many other countries in the world at that time, basically said, well, we're never going to do that again. If somebody comes to us fleeing a well-founded fear of persecution, we won't send them back. And that international consensus that was built out of that historical experience, I fear that it could it could be you know going away if the U.S. is not there to provide that leadership, and not only for ourselves, but also insisting that other countries respect those standards as well. So a couple of elements to the landscape for doing ministry with displaced people in the U.S. are the increased awareness of asylum seekers, the need for advocacy around fair asylum procedures, and the decreasing resettlement infrastructure. With the ceiling for refugee admissions set at 30,000 for fiscal year 2019, compared to about 70,000 on average over the prior decade, the nine agencies that contract with the State Department to serve resettled refugees are making cuts. For example, as of September 2018, Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Services reported laying off 120 staff countrywide, though not all were related to resettlement. Catholic Charities was in the midst of reducing from 64 to 50 resettlement offices. World Relief had closed seven offices, and the International Rescue Committee had closed three. That decline in infrastructure has a long-term effect for uh, the ways refugees are served, because as, as you know, refugees get a lot of support the first few months that they're in the country, but the support doesn't end when they hit their 90 days in the country or 180 days. Um, they're going to keep going back to that resettlement agency for a long time. And at our best, resettlement agencies have worked really closely with churches to hand off a lot of those opportunities for people to stay connected to a local church. You know, those churches rely on, on that infrastructure of a resettlement agency to know who's coming in, to know, you know, uh, how they can best serve them, what the needs are. And especially in communities where the resettlement agency has just closed altogether, it's, I think, going to be much more difficult going forward. And even in agencies where there are still somebody there, but the staff has been so dramatically reduced, it's just, it makes it much more difficult. And that's not a switch that you can just turn them back on. You know, it's like there's a new administration. I mean, I think you can rebuild the infrastructure, but it won't be overnight. This is where things get personal. Since I returned from Turkey, my own workplace has served as a microcosm of this larger dismantling. We resettled less than 40 refugees in a year, compared to three or 400 annually as we have over the last 10 years. In July, we gave up the storage space where we keep household items and furniture used to support new refugee families. I spent two weeks parceling it out to other organizations, churches, and thrift stores. And our team said goodbye to coworker after coworker as our budget was sliced one grant at a time. Attorneys, ESL teachers, caseworkers, employment counselors, receptionists, volunteers ready to serve new refugees sat in queue for months. In a way, they mirror the tens of thousands of people in asylum countries, like Peter, waiting in lines that aren't moving. 
as a team of service providers, volunteers, colleagues, and friends living out our sense of calling. Our connections and friendships with refugees and asylum seekers tap us into a global nervous system that feels every headline, every policy change, every cruel misrepresentation of their personhood spun up to help a politician climb to power. How do we grieve these things? How do we continue receiving the people we serve into our lives as gifts and friends? How do we keep claiming the Lord's presence, power, and victory over evil? Hannah Bonifacius presented a table talk on mental health in the ESL classroom at this year's roundtable. A couple months later, she found herself in the midst of a moment when all these questions seemed to crystallize. During her class's Christmas party, the staff and teachers filed to the front of the classroom to sing a carol to the students. Singing of God's miraculous presence and power to a room full of asylum seekers and refugees from South and Central America, Iraq, Syria, Somalia, Yemen, Ethiopia, Burma, and the DRC, proved to be a stirring experience. Hannah shares her reflections here in a poem called Far As The Curse Is Found. I found the curse and sprung up green memories of a Sudanese woman, painting the figure of her father against the backdrop of the travel ban. Their reunion indefinitely postponed, with her ability to touch the stubble-faced familiarity of her home with long, bony brown fingers perpetually reaching out for the sunlight of being known. I found the curse in the no-trespassing signs of my Syrian students' minds, their neuropathways riddled with potholes and the ever-churning mud spinning out their tired tires, trying to neutralize their traumas, trying to forge ahead with language that still sounds more like scraping an effort further into the journey than they'd have hoped for. I found the curse under the husband's all-but-gentle hands, a mark on the shoulder of undoran woman, whose high heels match the way she laughs easily, the poison of impatience and anger repeatedly creeping from the heart down to the hands of a man unwilling to see the heart of his wife's humor and ease. I found the curse and fatness consumed to fill the time. Social media absorbed to preoccupy minds too filled with fear from phones that preach sermons that would never be accepted from any pulpit or priest. I found the curse worn as a garment of facts, flaunted at family gatherings by the recently awoken ESL teacher, striving to shed her self-stated, outmoded upbringing. Surprised, I found the repeating curse could not suppress the resounding joy, like deep undercurrents moving humanity onward despite barrel bombs, gang violence, child soldiers snatching, governments dispatching raids in the dead of night claiming death and division our common enemy. Come morning, there is the sound of joy in a Syrian man's undulating songs, an overflow of the emotions he can't speak. He makes our coffee in the dawn-lit classroom, where he believes he's alone. His audience of classmates enters quietly to hear in pitches and tones a language they do not know, holding sorrows that echo their own melodies. The Honduran mother cannot find a shelter large enough for her family of almost seven. She is expecting twins, two women, on the south side. Catch her story in the vast and intricately connected catina called the church. 
Joy is found in her pocket, a key to a house where she now knows only safety. Undelayed sounds of joy reverberate off a table filled with neighbors whom my Sudanese friend frequently invites in. Life is even worse than those first days of arrival, but the roots of hospitality in our history may yet teach us the meaning of embrace, regardless of if she ever feels the strong-tipped fingers of her nearly blind father tip her face into his palms again. So we remain resolute. Come travel ban, come wall, come racism, come fear, come poverty, come the curses we hold to, like the flags of our patriotism. Extended yet to us is an offer of the truth. Joy pulls all of heaven and nature in. It is recognized in the contours of unexpected faces, more vulnerable than we'd like, stronger than we could predict, like the newborn baby brought into this earth of strife and death, committed to those our world deems cursed. The truth beyond the soundbites about displaced people comes in many forms. We can find it in research. We can find it in nuanced, precise answers about complex policy issues. We can find it in a story or a friendship that reveals the personhood behind the statistics. We can find it in a poem or song that allows us to access a deeper level of meaning in a single experience. We also find truth in God's mysteries and promises revealed in the scriptures. Episode 10, A Message Delivered by Daniel Yang, will bookend this sequence by going deeper beyond the sound bites than anything we've tried in this podcast so far. But I'm realizing that it's impossible to discover the meaning of this magnitude of suffering in just one generation. He retells his family's own displacement narrative, interwoven with a passage from Isaiah. I hope you'll keep listening. This series of Beyond Soundbites was created in collaboration with the Refugee Highway Partnership North America, a network of churches, ministries, and individuals supporting refugees and asylum seekers across the U.S. and Canada. Other organizational partners include the Refugee Language Program, Exodus World Service, Tucson Refugee Ministry, Global Community Partners, and Abounding Service. Laura Sackett and Hannah Bonifacius provided editorial input. Brett Ratliff mixed the episode. John and Valerie Guerra created the theme music. The rest of the music is by Chris Dingman.